strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. And tonight I'm going to tell you the story of Agnes Underwood, the first lady of L.A. true crime. Some women are just not meant to stand on the sidelines. Some women break barriers and glass ceilings and change the face of an industry. One such woman was Agnes Underwood, America's first lady of true crime. Oh, that's pretty cool. At a time when most women in journalism were relegated to writing advice columns or reporting on the happenings of the celebrities in the, in the area, one woman was deeply embroiled in some of the 20th century's most notorious crime stories. Agnes Mae Wilson, as that is her maiden name, Agnes Mae Wilson was born in San Francisco, California. Her father was a glassblower and her mother a housewife. Glassblower? Yes, a journeyman glassblower. Oh my goodness, I love those people. They make beautiful, beautiful things. <laughs> I just bought a beautiful blown glass pineapple. Yeah, so talented. <laughs> the family traveled frequently as her father searched for work. In 1907, tragedy struck the family, and Aggie's mother died in childbirth. Her Aww. father, who was forced to travel to find work, found himself unable to care for Agnes and her younger sister. It was then that she and her sister were handed over to relatives in Terre Haute, Indiana. Underwood recalled that she and her sister did not stay in Terre Haute for very long and that they moved frequently, often winding up in the hands of public charity. Her father became quite distressed with the way that his daughters were being treated and found two foster homes in Portland, Indiana, each willing to take one of the girls. So they separate? Yeah. Underwood's sister was sent to live with the farm family. While Agnes herself was sent to the home of Charles and Belle Urey and their three sons. She and the eldest of the three sons, Ralph, liked each other immediately. Ralph Urey became her friend and protector. Underwood later described the Urey household was a serious environment made bearable only by Ralph's kindness. Underwood did very well in school and skipped three grades. Wow. Oh, How, girl. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, good for you. Like, I could have skipped one grade, but my mom said I'd be too weird. So, the I mean, fact, I'm still super weird. But The fact of what she's been through and still is able to skip three grades. Yeah. I was like, like, she's lost her mother. Her mother's dead. Her father had Her father's away, essentially abandoned her and had to split up from her sister. So she's alone in the world with a family that is but not hers. But she was still able to be so smart. Yeah. So she's still just like killing it at school. Ugh. Until high school. Good for you. So. In 1916, she entered high school, and it was here that her enthusiasm for study had waned, and she dropped out in the 10th grade. Underwood took a job as a clerk in the basement of Cartwright's department store in Portland, Indiana. Sounds like she, hurt, like she was just too old for her age. She's like, I'm over, I'm done with, I, I've, I've had so much life, so much life in my, in my, my few short years. In her 14 yeah, short years. she's like, I'm done, I'm done. Yeah. So Underwood took a job as a clerk in the basement of Cartwright's department store in Portland, Indiana. She became increasingly unhappy living with the Uris, particularly following Ralph's deployment overseas as a soldier in World War I. Ralph sensed Underwood's discontent in the letters that she wrote to him. Believing that she might be better off if she had found a blood relative, he managed to locate one of her distant relatives in San Francisco. I'm sorry. This is supposed to be like her protector and like her brother of sorts. And yeah. he was just like, I'm done talking to you. So here's. No, he was away in World War One. 
And when she sent him letters, she he seemed like, very unhappy. So he's like, oh, so he was like, maybe like... we can find somewhere better where you'll be happier. So he actually went out of his way to figure oh. out where a blood relative that, might oh, live. I thought that was more of a rejection, kind of like, I don't want to do it No, I think she was just like the else. only, he okay. was the only person that she had. And when he left, she was really bummed. Okay. So now she's in the house. Nobody there is like close with her the way that he was. You know, I'm, I'm you don't a, really ever hear I'm, I'm if, a negative source. I was like, immediate rejection, immediate rejection. Well, you never really hear like if she ever talked to her father again. Oh, that's quite true. Honestly. Yeah, like that's you true. never really hear about that. And so, how, like, how does he have the resources of where he is to find? That's insane. I don't know. I guess he just sent wow, letters yeah. and like talked to people and tried to figure it out. I mean, you know, so he did eventually find a blood relative who lived in San Francisco. Underwood left the Yuri's home in Portland, Indiana, for San Francisco in November of 1918 and moved in with her relative who lived in an apartment in Geary Street. Underwood knew that she would be expected to contribute to the household expenses and set out to find a job. After a few frustrating days of unsuccessful job hunting, she arrived at the apartment only to find that her relative had moved out, leaving Underwood broke, alone, and now homeless. Holy shit. She is now 16 years old. What? 16 years old, homeless in San Francisco. Another of Underwood's female relatives invited her to move in with them in Hollywood, California. Soon after her arrival, it became clear that Underwood's relative was only interested in transforming the girl into a child star. When that plan failed, the relative put Underwood out on the street. Underwood became a resident of the Salvation Army's home for working women in downtown Los Angeles and got a job at the Broadway department store. It was there that she met Evelyn Connors, a woman a few months her junior, who would become her lifelong friend. Following a brief move to Salt Lake City, Utah, Underwood returned to Los Angeles, and she found work as a waitress at the Pig and Whistle restaurant in downtown Los Angeles. One day, in April of 1920, she was lamenting to Harry Underwood, a co-worker, that her Hollywood relative had resurfaced and was demanding that Underwood live with her again and relinquish her paychecks to her. Or she would find the underage girl and turn her over to authorities. Harry told her that the relative could not do that if Underwood were married. And the couple was married three weeks later, on April 28, 1920. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So now she married a dude that she works with just to get away from the scheming relative who was like, uh, if you don't give me your money, I'm going to turn you over to the cops. Because she still wasn't. She was still not 18. But how did she even get married? What age do you think that you were allowed to get married? I know that in California in 1920 that you are allowed. Unfortunately, <laughs> you are allowed to get married at the age of 13 if you give if you have parental. I am um, sure that in 1918, also, 1920. Yeah, I'm sure in 1920 the rules were significantly different. I did not look that up, but I'm sure that it was once you're married, you're emancipated, and then yeah, right. yeah. I just know that like maybe a parent needed to be present during that whole ceremony. I'm Unlikely. Unlikely in 1920. 
I mean, she was sixteen. I mean, at one she point. was almost she was almost eighteen years old at this point, so she was probably like seventeen and like, a half. Like, uh, whatever. What was a couple months? She's essentially a spinster already, you know. So her, <laughs> so the, the friend at yeah. The so she married like, the guy that she worked with at the restaurant, Harry. Hey, Harry, what's going on? Yeah, what's happening? And by nineteen twenty six, Underwood and her husband had become parents to a daughter and a son. Oh, though Underwood's husband had a good job, the family still struggled to make ends meet. One of the small economies that Agnes practiced was to wear hand-me-down silk stockings. One day, Underwood asked her husband for the money to buy a pair of stockings of her own, but her husband refused, saying that they could not afford them. And an argument ensued, and Underwood told her husband that if he would not give her the money for stockings, she would get a job and buy them for herself. Yeah, Agnes. <laughs> Agnes! Underwood said that she did not want to work outside of the home, and that she had no idea even where to begin to look for a job. But as it turned out, yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) she does. But as it turned out, a job found her. The day following the stockings argument, Underwood's friend Evelyn Connors, back from the Salvation Army, called and asked her if she would be interested in a temporary job uh, on the switchboard at the record. Actually, I would love a temporary job at the switchboard. Thank you so much. So interesting. I made myself some new stockings. My husband just told me he wouldn't buy me stockings. And I told that motherfucker that I would get a job and buy them for my damn self. I need some new stockings, maybe a new hat. This is great. Thank you. Yeah. You know, she needed some of a lady's luxuries. So. Especially if, <laughs> if that luxury was actually an act, like you had to have that to walk about, like. There's a certain, at that time, there's a certain uniform. Ladies had to wear these. Ladies had to wear these. Yeah. And so if you can't afford them, well, then. She just wanted a pair of her own, man. But, but at some point, she wanted to like, wear some old, already stretched that, out you know? ones from someone else. I know, it's true. She wants her own. Underwood seized the opportunity and thus began her career in the newspaper business. And as chance would have it, she would change the face of journalism forever. In October 1926, Underwood began her job as a switchboard operator at the Los Angeles Record. It was at the record that Underwood learned the newspaper business from the ground up. She was a quick study and worked hard at any task that she was assigned. She assisted Gertrude Price, who wrote a woman's column under the pseudonym Cynthia Gray, in the Christmas basket program for the poor. Price recognized Underwood's innate talent and became Underwood's mentor. In December 1927, William Edward Hickman kidnapped, murdered, and then butchered a 12-year-old Marion Parker. Hickman was on the run when Underwood saw the United Press flash that he had been captured in Oregon. Underwood quickly grabbed the telephone and told her husband the news. It was a very sensational story. So she had the scoop. She's inside the mm-hmm. newspaper. She hears what's happening. Price, her mentor, overheard the call and reprimanded Underwood for talking about the story outside of the newsroom before it was in print. Underwood never made that mistake again. She quickly worked her way up to a reporter at the record, and her first byline was an interview with an elderly man who was credited with having planned planted the first cotton in California. Wow. Holy shit. <laughs> Fun, right? Yeah. Anyway. She lived a really cool life. Anyway. Underwood's first major crime reporting began on May 20th of 1931, when Los Angeles was shaken by the murders of Charles H. Crawford and Herbert F. Spencer. Crawford was a former saloon keeper and was the power behind the scenes in much of the city's government. Spencer was a former police reporter who had become associated with the Critic of Critics, a political crusading publication. The day following the murders, 33-year-old David H. Clark, a former deputy district attorney and candidate for municipal judge, surrendered himself to the district attorney and admitted to the murders. 
Underwood had noticed a couple of gaps in the coverage of the murders. She thought it odd that no one had interviewed Clark's parents. Underwood managed to locate them, and they gave her an exclusive interview and photographs. Underwood's interview with the Clark parents appeared in the newspaper under the headline, Mrs. Clark says son is innocent, earning her a, a double column byline. Underwood was given an increasing number of major stories to cover for the record, and her reputation as a reporter grew. She was offered a job at William Randolph Hearst's Herald Express, but she turned it down. The Herald Express expected her to provide her own automobile, but she did not own a car. In addition, she felt that she was gaining valuable experience in in every aspect of the newspaper business, and that she should stay at the short-staffed record because they really needed her. Early in January of 1935, the Herald Express again offered Underwood a job. She had decided to decline the offer when a couple of days later she learned that the record was going to be sold to Illustrated Daily News. Despite assurances that her position would be safe, Underwood decided that it was probably better to take the job at the Herald Express. Robin, hmm. what do you think her first assignment was at her new job? 1935. Something with the Great Depression, I'm assuming? No? No. Underwood's first assignment for the Herald Express was to interview Amelia Earhart. Shut up. <laughs> like, are you fucking kidding me? That's the first thing. This lady, no high school diploma, just wanted to buy her own damn stockings, is now going to, like, go and have a chat with Amelia fucking Earhart. You this know what? <sighs> Their idea is probably like, oh, a woman, a woman. Just send the woman over to do a woman's job. Talk to a woman, blah, blah, blah. No probably. One has, no one has time for Amelia Earhart. No one nope. wants to be bothered with Amelia Earhart. Fuck you, people. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yay, so, Agnes. I know. Get How it, girl. fun is that? This was just after Amelia had successfully completed a historic solo flight from Honolulu, Hawaii to Oakland, California. Underwood staked out Earhart's North Hollywood home for several hours before she turned up. The interview was worth the wait. Underwood discovered that she was the only Herald Express reporter who had caught up with Earhart. So not only did she have to report, but she stalked her. Yeah, man. I mean, how else do you <laughs> think she gets... I love it. I mean, how else do you think she gets these stories? I, I love the fact that a woman in, like, the late 20s, early 30s, and, like, 35 at this point, you know, can you just imagine the newsroom be like, oh, uh, oh, hey, Agnes, I got... I, I, I got a story for you, you know, like the whole like jab and the bustling of the typewriters and running so many cigarettes, so many, so many cigarettes and like bottles of bourbon in every drawer of every desk. So much black coffee. Just running around. And here she's like, she's hauling cabs or maybe like telling some one driver who got put on her duty and he was like so mad about it. He's like, oh, all right, fine. Two kids. And then, yeah. And then she's like, we're going to go to drive to this place. We're going to go to Hollywood, North Hollywood. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And he's driving her. He's like, yeah. I don't understand why I have to drive Agnes around. This is fucking bullshit. And mind you, she's on her way to interview Amelia Earhart. Yeah. God damn, I love it. <laughs> it's so, it's so cool. I knew you were going to pop it's hard so for Amelia. Cool. Like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm popping hard just for the whole concept of a woman during that time, being an investigative reporter and just being in that kind of hustle and bustle and everyone giving her a hard time for being a woman and doing a man's job. And here she's like, well, I'm about to fucking interview Amelia Hart. When you see like uh, in any of the film noir movies and you see like the tough yeah. like lady reporter. Yeah, absolutely. She's who it's based on. Mm-hmm. I 
love it so much. She is the film noir trope <sighs> of the newswoman. Agnes, baby doll, keep it coming. I'm all ears, baby, I'm all ears. Three weeks after she began working at the Herald Express, Underwood drew photographer Perry Fowler for a story on the rape of a 16-year-old girl. Underwood and Fowler worked together regularly after that and were unofficially regarded as a team. So her and Perry Fowler are like total buds and they work together all the time and they made early morning rounds what they called milk runs to the local jails. Most frequently, they visited the Lincoln Heights Jail almost daily, ferreting out crimes and scandals on which to report. Among the stories that Underwood covered over the next 12 years were the untimely deaths of Hollywood stars Thelma Todd, whose autopsy she actually attended, and the death of Jean Harlow. As a journalist, she covered everything from earthquakes and floods to murder and mayhem, and she interviewed killers and victims with skill and compassion. She is so cool. She reported on female prisoners in Chea Choppy for a three-part series called Forgotten Women. She reported on the case of Nellie Madison, who was convicted of shooting and killing her husband in March of 1935. At first, Underwood assumed Madison was guilty because she had been married five times and produced no children from any of the marriages. She eventually became an advocate for Madison and garnered an outcry of letters which led to Madison's conviction from death to be changed to life in prison after she revealed that she was a victim of domestic violence and that she had actually killed her husband in self-defense. Way to go. So. I mean, that's awesome. She just, like, called it like she saw it. You it's know like, what I mean? Oh, really? Just because a woman's been married five times means that she's the problem? And she was on that side. She was like, you know what? She's been married five times. Eh. It's a little weird. But look you know? a little deeper. But then she's like, that there's actually ooh. An issue. Mm. If he's beating you and you're just trying to save your own life, you know, and, and she worked hard to get that sentence overturned. So that's awesome. She was bold and gutsy and would do anything to get and keep the story, even harboring a felon. Underwood was harboring a murderess named Hazel Glab. The year was 1935 and Glab was about to stand trial. Underwood refused to let reporters from competing news outlets track her down and interview her. She went so far as to have her stay in her own home. Eventually, Glab was convicted of murder, but not before Underwood got her exclusive interview. In her home. Yes. Jesus Christ. Honey, stranger danger. <laughs> Aggie, let's seriously. <laughs> Lock your doors, babe. Lock your doors. Aggie thought of herself as a general assignment reporter. However, she gained a reputation as a crime reporter. Good detectives are observers, and so are good reporters, which may explain why stories circulated that Aggie solved crimes. In late 1939, Aggie went out on a story that appeared to be a tragic accident. A family of five had been killed when their car had tumbled hundreds of feet down a mountainside near the Mount Wilson Observatory. There was one survivor, the husband and the father of the victims, Laurel Crawford. Aggie wasn't allowed to interview him because <clears throat> cops felt that he had been through enough. However, Aggie made a deal with one of the deputies who allowed her to listen in while Crawford was being questioned. Aggie observed the man and she had a hunch. One of the sheriff's department homicide investigators asked Aggie, what do you think of it, Aggie? She didn't hesitate and replied, I think it smells. He's guilty as hell. Aggie had observed not only Crawford's demeanor, which led her to believe that his, that his display of grief was disingenuous, but that she had also noticed that his shoes weren't scuffed and his clothing wasn't dirty, 
torn, or wrinkled, which made his story of climbing down the mountain to the wreckage to the, of his family's sedan pretty tough to believe. Additionally, Crawford had stated that he had picked up the body of one of his daughters and held her, but there was no evidence of blood on his clothing. Aggie's spidey sense was engaged. A thorough investigation of the case proved that Crawford had taken out life insurance policies on each of the victims, worth a total of $30,000. Son of a bitch. About a half a million dollars in today's money. Laurel Crawford was sentenced to four consecutive life terms, with a recommendation that he never be paroled. Suck it, Crawford. (laughs) Suck it, Crawford. Aggie, you're a badass. Oh, my God. (laughs) For years, Aggie covered everything from celebrity trials to gruesome murders. In January 1947, arguably the most infamous murder case in L.A.'s history broke. The mutilation slain of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. On January 15th, 1947, the bisected body of a young woman was found in Limert Park, near 39th and Norton. According to Underwood, she was the first reporter to arrive at the body dump site. The dead woman was soon identified as Elizabeth Short from Medford, Massachusetts. Wow. Long way from home. Underwood was assigned to the story. There have been several people over the years who have attempted to claim credit for naming the victim, the Black Dahlia. And Aggie was one of them. Shut up. Aggie said that the Black Dahlia tag was dug out on a day when everyone else was combing around blind alleys. She decided to check in with Ray Geist, detective lieutenant in the LAPD homicide division, to see if any stray facts had been overlooked. According to Aggie, he said, This is something you might like, Agnes. I found out that they call her the Black Dahlia around the drugstore where she used to hang out in Long Beach. Aggie didn't just like it. She loved it. And she is given credit for giving Elizabeth Short the term the Black Dahlia. Holy shit. (laughs) Wow. Oh, my God. (laughs) So Aggie is assigned to the case. And she is ready to figure this shit out. Yeah. Aggie interviewed Robert Red Manley, the first serious suspect in the Black Dahlia case. So this next little bit comes from Aggie's autobiography, where she talks about her interview with Red. She caught up with him for an interview. She says in her book that she approached him and she goes to talk to him. And she said, you look as if you've been on a drunk while sizing him up. She said that she was ready to talk to him sympathetically about hangovers. And that approach would work sometimes with guys, especially if it looked like a guy you might meet in a bar. His response was, this is worse than any drunk I've ever been on. Perry Fowler, the photographer assigned to the case, caught the cue of what she was going to do and offered Red a cigarette, which Manly gratefully took. She says, look, fella, you're in one hell of a spot. You're in a jam and it's no secret. I love it. If you're as innocent as you say you are, tell the whole story and there won't be nothing to hide. People won't be able to do anything but know you're telling the truth. That way you'll get it over with all at once and won't be kicking around to cause you any more trouble. That's how I imagine she sounds. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And Red needed, (laughs) Red didn't need any further encouragement to unburden himself to Aggie. He told her how he initially picked up Elizabeth on a San Diego street corner and how they had spent an erotically eventful night in a hotel and how he'd eventually dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel on January 9th. Red finished the tale with, I'll never pick up another dame as long as I live. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) That's so great. 
But Aggie believed that Red was innocent, and she shared her gut feelings with the police. Red was forthcoming in his interview, and Aggie knew right away that he wasn't the killer. Red was just a frightened man with goofy ideas about love tests. If there's one thing that Aggie detested, it was a sob sister. Which, in case you don't know, that is a female journalist who writes overly sentimental copy. The sort of journalism was never Aggie's thing. To hell with that, she said. <laughs> I'd rather have a fistful or an armload of a good solid facts. I mean, yeah. Come on now. <laughs> I love this woman. She's amazing. Is she not? Like, just She's telling a hell of a story. <laughs> She's like goals. She's just fucking goals. goals. Yeah. Okay. She was prepared to follow the story to its conclusion, but without warning, she was benched. After a couple of days of cooling her heels in the newsroom, she decided, fuck them. I'm going to bring my embroidery to work. And pretty soon, <laughs> she started to hear the snickers. Aggie said that one of her colleagues laughed out loud and said, well, what do you think of that? Here's the best reporter on the Herald on the biggest day with the biggest stories sitting here doing a fancy work. Jesus Christ. I love it. <laughs> and what was her response? Because I'm pretty sure she'd be like, well, yeah, I'm going to take this sticks in my hand. I'm going to shut up your ass. Straight up your ass. Well, actually, I think that her whole point was because... Was to be like, well, if you're not going to let me do my work, I'm just going to come bring my lady things. Yeah. If you think all I can do is sit here and be a lady, then fuck you. I love it so much. So I think that the whole point of her bringing the embroidery to work was to be like, well, if you're not going to let me do my job, then I'm just going to sit here and do my hobbies. Absolutely. Fuck you. Yeah. And after that comment was made... Very quickly after that, she was reassigned back to the Dahlia case. Oh, well, look at that. But just as quickly, she was yanked off it again. Come on. It was then that she was given the news that she was being promoted to city editor. Aggie said she never understood the timing of her promotion. She would have preferred to follow the Dahlia story until it went cold. But... It, it was an important moment in the, her career and in the history of women in journalism. It's a great thing, but that, but that, did that keep her out of the field? Is that what yeah. they were trying? To, yeah. So it's a great promotion, great for like yeah. being the so like such yeah. a hierarchy for a woman to be in that field, but it kept her out of yeah. what she wanted to do. Not just that, Aggie was the first woman in the United States to become the city editor at a major me- metropolitan newspaper. That's. Awesome. But but she probably why, hated it, right? She hated it. But why had she been removed from the yeah. Black Dahlia case in the first place? And just like you said, there's something about that that kind of stinks, right? Mm-hmm. And people are drawn to conspiracies. No matter how unlikely, there are those who believe that there was a cover-up and that Aggie was too close to the solution to Short's murder. Theorists have suggested that someone with enough juice got Aggie promoted to keep her out of the way. Oh, I have a theory. I have a theory. Go for it. So I have a theory. So she basically named Black Dahlia, right? Yep. And then she Well, it's like between her and three people. Like three people took credit and they all could have done it. So she, she named her Black Dahlia and then she got too close. And then she was removed from the case then she was brought back in and then she promoted which basically being promoted means that she was removed back from the case yep and it's kind of like she got too close and she knew too much but what did she know too much about but my question is where where is um her photographer 
Is he still in the case or was he also removed from the case? So I think that generally it seems like what it worked, it worked like was that there was a pool of reporters and a pool of photographers. And that like every morning you got your case assignment and you weren't normally mm-hmm. tagged up that yeah. way. But they just happened to be. I'm sure maybe a lot of photographers didn't want to go out with a woman or whatever, but they just had a good chemistry. So they typically kind of worked together. The so I'm sure after that, he sorry, just went back into the, I think he just went back into the pool. I don't think he continued to work on the Black Dahlia so case. So he was he also kind of removed from yes, it. Because he so wouldn't I have just. I think that they were onto something. And I think that it what they were going to get to was internal. I think it was an internal job. I think that they were too close to it, and it's something that it was internal. And <laughs> it just like, stinks to you, it right? Was, it was too close to home. Everyone got suspicious. Like, why would this woman solve the case? And so-and-so needs to solve this case. So yeah. let's remove her and have him go forward, and then they can solve the case. But here's the thing, right? What happened so to you her say that, but she's the city editor. She can do whatever she wants. And she can get anyone to look into anything she wants. Yeah, but she So she's not really removed. But not really removed. But she's held at a desk, right? Yes, but she can get yeah. anyone to look at anything she wants. If she had such she a solid lead, she could have totally sent somebody out to look into that lead. No, she said yes. she's, no, she's the yeah, boss. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But she seems like the person that would want to go out on the Of course, she herself. is the person who would want, but she wouldn't be able to. And yeah. she knew that. So if... If so, sent her friend out, the photographer. Hey, go, go over here and get go but, get some pictures. But not even just that. Like, whoever took over her spot, she could be like, "Oh, well, this is kind of the thing that I was thinking. Keep looking into that." Do you know what I mean? There's no reason why she wouldn't have done that, though. So that's a huge part of like the Black Dahlia lore is that this like female reporter got too close and got like pulled out. It's like mm-hmm. part of the whole conspiracy. But it is also said that she knew who the killer was, but lacked the ability to prove it. And in her late life, when asked who the killer was, she said, it doesn't matter. He's dead anyway. That is what she told her grandson. Her grandson? Yes. doesn't matter. He said anyway. So who? I mean, everyone would have been dead. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Her like... grandson. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, well, so that just means that she knew who it was. She she had a theory. It is and one of the most. Honestly, I think that I honestly think that she knew. I think she was a very smart broad, and she I'm saying broad. I'm like so she's you, very smart broad. So do you think that she thought it was someone that she was scared to name? No. Then why wouldn't she have continued to pursue it through her not, resources? Because not as city editor, evidence to coincide i think that maybe she and she just didn't want to say it because then she didn't want to get a bad name into trouble for it no i think that if she if if she knew who it was based on instinct based on what she gathered but there's no hardcore evidence to prove it then she would kind of wait on the sidelines to make sure that maybe ooh, maybe he might do it again and then she can overlap that and see how the occurrences go over time. Then, then now she has a case. But I now she thought she's it was. just like, she's like, I have no proof. And it's not like other gut instincts she had. Like the guy like who with she the She is the a family. very talented investigator. Yeah. She's so just I think that she astute. actually knew, but she had no way of proving it. And if she brought it to light, 
it might have been someone really high in importance. So if she did yeah. bring it to light, it would kind of fell on her. I mean, the most famous suspect that people tend to think that it is, is George Hodel, um, who was a doctor who lived in that beautiful, crazy house. If you've ever watched any of the true crime documentaries about the Black Dahlia, that he lived in this beautiful sort of as techie and like mm -hmm. Frank Lloyd Wright, like insanity. Mm -hmm. Um so that's sort of the famously, like, the most popular suspect. So I just wonder if that was who she thought it was. But then I wonder if a physician would have the kind of pull to make no, those changes. I don't, think so. I don't think so. That's why, like, I don't think that her – I don't think that her being – there was never enough evidence, right? There never, never was. That's the reason why enough. no one was ever caught. Yeah. So it wasn't just her. I just think that she had a theory and she really believed it. And she may have believed it was him. So many people did. I don't believe the conspiracy theory. That's what I'm saying. I do not think that there was some like conspiracy on high that pulled her out away from there because it no. wouldn't have stopped her. I like like I don't think it would have stopped she's her. She's a mad woman. She wants to know the truth. Yeah, I don't think it would have stopped her for one second. And she's not afraid of saying the truth, but and for some reason she was afraid to say this truth. I don't know why, but I do think that she was honest. And I think oh, that yeah, she wouldn't absolutely. Absolutely. So there was later in her life, she there was a story that came out that she was attached to a mobster and that she had famously like created a story about some missing money for this mobster. But she eventually sued Mike Wallace <laughs> because he did this interview and with this mobster. I'm not going to get into that, though. I'm not going to. It's a whole nother story. I think that's also pretty cool. It's a whole different story. Yeah. She was a wild and tough woman and did not cringe in the face of evil. She attended autopsies, sat through murder trials, and interviewed some of the century's worst offenders. She ran the Herald with an iron fist, wielding a sawed-off baseball bat and a starter pistol. She ran a staff of hard-nosed reporters and photographers until her retirement in 1968 at the age of 65. Hundreds attended her farewell party, which was hosted by Bob Hope. Oh, wow. At the party, she was overheard saying to one of her colleagues, please don't forget me. His response, I don't see how we ever could. God damn you. <laughs> Aggie is the archetype, tough as nails, stop at nothing lady journalist. In 1981, and in failing health, she moved from Los Angeles to Greeley, Colorado, to live near her son and grandchildren. And on July 3rd, 1984, she suffered a fatal heart attack. Following her death, Underwood was eulogized in all of the local newspapers. The Herald Examiner said... She was undeterred by the grisliest of crime scenes and had a knack for getting details that eluded other reporters. As editor, she knew the names and telephone numbers of numerous celebrities, in addition to all the bars her reporters frequented. She cultivated the day's best sources, ranging from gangsters to prostitutes to movie stars and government officials. Looking back at L.A. true crime, in that era, it is impossible not to come across Aggie's name. She was involved in all of the old Hollywood's most sensational crimes. You can find out more about her and those crimes at derangedlacrimes.com. That is the story of Aggie Underwood, the badass female crime reporter who named the Black Dahlia. Just another notorious narrative. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. 
you can also go to patreon.com forward slash notorious narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring.